Warning! Binge mode contains adult content. Oh, it sure does. Listen, we're not quite there yet, but uh, at some point, there will be some ejaculation being done loudly. What does that mean? I don't know. Let's ask uh, JK if she ever comes on the podcast about that. But that's the kind of talk you get here at Binge Mode. Come so on, if you Binge don't, Mode. Come, on, binge, come loudly on Binge <laughs> Mode. So if that's not the kind of thing that you're looking for, <laughs> you check out Bachelor Party. Oh Just so clean. One more warning. Binge Mode contains spoilers. If you don't yet know whose life's ambition is to have his head cut off and stuck up on a plaque just like his mother, please proceed with extreme caution. And now binge mode. Harry, we wanted to tell you we really did. Hermione began. Can't have wanted to that much, can you? Or you'd have sent me an owl. But Dumbledore made you swear. Well, he did. Four weeks I've been stuck in Privet Drive, nicking papers out of bins to try and find out what's been going on. I suppose you've been having a real laugh, haven't you? All holed up here together. That's Harry wanting to know what's happening and people not telling him. <laughs> and welcome to Harry's internal monologue. Yes, it's just all caps. <laughs> welcome to Binge Mode Harry Potter. I'm Mally Rubin, executive editor of TheRinger.com. What a great website. Fabulous. Joining me today, now that he's finished pursuing a business opportunity yeah, with listen, Mendungus Fletcher. You know, these cauldrons don't move themselves. It's Ringer staff writer and your headmaster. Jason Concepcion. Mel, I wouldn't have left, but I had binge mode Harry Potter where we're exploring every facet of the Harry Potter universe. Whether you're using Mr. Tibbles or extendable ears to spy, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and please rate and review us. Five points, five stars for binge mode. Also, go ahead and follow us on Twitter and Instagram at binge underscore mode, a.k.a. the underscore, and join our Facebook group, which is only for binge mode fans and which is an excellent place to share tips on silencing shrieking portraits adhered to the wall with permanent sticking charms. It's really annoying when that happens. Please stop ringing the doorbell. Please Don't stop. ring it. Stop knocking over the troll legs, yes. please. So far on Binge Mode Harry Potter, we've used a permanent sticking charm of our own to explore the Sorcerer's Stone, Chamber of Secrets, Prisoner of Azkaban, and Goblet of Fire books and movies. Woo! Plus additional extensions of the Harry Potter universe. And on today's episode, we are beginning our Order of the Phoenix deep dive Ooh. by examining chapters one through five of the fifth book in this beloved saga. Requisite spoiler warning for today's binge, as always. While those chapters are today's primary focus, we will be going deep. Deep! On details from all seven books and eight films and the wider Potter canon. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Taking the entire series into account from the moment Mad-Eye turns us into human chameleons. So mount your broom, be wise to grab a sweater, because it's time to head to Grimald Place. Mal? Wand still in your jeans? Both buttocks still on? Okay, let's go! Because it's time to offer up a brief refresher on what actually happened in order chapters 
one through five by climbing aboard this scarlet steam engine of Plot the Hogwarts Express. It's summertime, and Harry Potter is back at number four, Privet Drive. As usual, he's suffering through a miserable summer. But this time, that misery is even more acute because Harry knows that Voldemort is back but he hasn't heard any useful news since leaving Hogwarts in June. Not from the Daily Prophet, not from his friends, so-called, and certainly not from Dumbledore. One night, as he and Dudley walk through the neighborhood, a pair of Dementors attack, and although Harry repels them with the Patronus charm, he's flagged for using magic underage in front of a muggle and sentenced to trial and possible expulsion from Hogwarts. Oh, boy. But first, before the hearing, he is whisked away from Little Whinging. Taken to London by members of the Order of the Phoenix, mm-hmm. who fly him to number 12 Grimwald Place, Sirius Black's house, and unplottable secret headquarters for the Order of the Phoenix. It's chilly in the skies. Hello, Jason. Hello. I thought I heard your dulcet tones. And that gets us to this episode's big idea. So let's dive into the pensive to sift through our thoughts. The defining theme of chapters one through five of Harry Potter and the Order of the Phoenix is... Disillusionment. Chapter One, Dudley Demented. Voldemort's return changed everything for Harry. He was witness to the horrific murder of Cedric Diggory, and he was an unwilling participant in an unholy ritual which returned the Dark Lord to the fullness of his power. He dueled Voldemort and survived. Because of his courage, yes, but also because he kind of got lucky. After that experience, Harry is just fundamentally a different person, forever informed by the trauma he suffered. More serious, more confident in his abilities, and less willing to hide that from the Dursleys or anyone. Voldemort is back and everything has changed, or it should have. Strangely, though, everything is weirdly normal. The sky has not fallen. The earth is still below his feet. And the Ministry, if it is responding to the existential threat of Voldemort's return, well, Harry is not seeing any evidence of this. But they must be doing something, right? All summer, Harry's been watching the news, reading the papers that he's nicked from trash cans, looking for signs of Voldemort's activity. Unexplained deaths, strange occurrences, weird weather patterns. He's seen nothing. His sudden interest in current events annoys Uncle Vernon and Aunt Petunia. Listening to the news again? Well, it changes every day, you see, said Harry. (laughs) He's reduced to lying on his back in the flower bed, baking in the heat, trying to eavesdrop on the television through the window. He's listening for any sign. Something that the Muggle News might not recognize, but that he would. Still, after all that watching and waiting, there's just nothing. This briefly relieves Harry, but then it rankles him. Why hasn't he heard anything? He's taking the Daily Prophet, waking up at 5 a.m. for it, in fact. But why? Why is nothing happening? Harry is feeling the first stirrings of disillusionment. Making things worse, Ron and Hermione, his best friends, the people whom he relies on for emotional support, among many other things, have Mm -hmm. been MIA. Worse than MIA, actually. Because while their letters have been arriving regularly, they contain... Very little information. We can't say much about you-know-what, obviously. We've been told not to say anything important in case our letters go astray. We're quite busy, but I can't give you any details here. There's a fair amount going on. We'll tell you everything when we see you, et cetera, et cetera. Why are his friends being so cagey? They hint that they'll see him soon, but when? Yeah. 
Harry has deduced that they're together and assumes that they're at the borough, but the thought of that doesn't bring him any solace. In fact, quite the opposite. It fills him with a jealous rage. Quote, he was so angry at them that he had thrown both their birthday presents of Honeyduke's chocolates away unopened. What, Harry wonders, are Ron and Hermione so busy doing? Yep. Why isn't he, Harry, busy? Quote, hadn't he proved himself capable of handling much more than they? Had they all forgotten what he had done? Hadn't it been he who had entered that graveyard and watched Cedric being murdered and been tied to that tombstone and nearly killed? As soon as the events from the graveyard begin to play through Harry's mind for the umpteenth time that summer, he tries to repress the memories, telling himself not to think about the horrors of that night. He can't control that he's visiting the graveyard in his nightmares, but now the events are haunting his waking hours, too. As we see here, though, Voldemort is not the only plague that's infecting Harry's mind. The way he's thinking about Ron and Hermione here, the way he's thinking about himself in relation to them here, isn't true to the Harry we know. He is self-effacing. He's grateful for his friends and largely, not always, but largely allergic to his own celebrity. This sense of self-importance that is manifesting in his internal monologue here, while genuinely not misplaced, everything he's thinking is fair on some level, it's also foreign for Harry. It's this weed that has sprouted from the betrayal that he's felt over the course of the summer. What would any of us do? In his position. Yes. How would any of us feel? Even without the burdens that Harry bears, who among us wouldn't stumble into this pettiness and this ugliness if we felt that our best friends, the people we rely on for strength and openness and honesty above all, were keeping something from us? Angsty Harry is very divisive for a lot of people, even for ardent fans of the series. But I think, as you said, what would any of us do? And especially at that age. How would you feel? I think at any age it would feel bad. Yeah. Surely Sirius, his beloved godfather, Mm -hmm. his father James's best man, surely he will have more to say. After all, it's only a handful of people who know that Sirius is innocent of the crimes he's accused of. Surely that counts for something. No, it does not. Sirius seems to understand how Harry feels, but that's not manifesting in anything actionable. His letters are as devoid of meaningful information as Ron and Hermione's from the book. I know this must be frustrating for you. Keep your nose clean and everything will be okay. Be careful and don't do anything rash. Harry's grateful that Sirius's correspondence at least lacks the hints that populate Ron and Hermione's, but he's floored by the absurdity of Sirius's (laughs) requests. Here is an escaped convict on the run with an escaped hippogriff who very nearly committed the murder that he was charged with telling Harry Keep your nose clean, guy. <laughs> Meanwhile, throughout all of this, where is Dumbledore? Great Why question. no letter from him? Voldemort is back, mm-hmm. a fact which no one would even know about if not for Harry, and Dumbledore cannot even check in and be like, how are you doing? How's your summer going? Are you okay? Busy guy. From the book again. The injustice of it all welled up inside of him so that he wanted to yell with fury. Harry needs his friends and his mentors, but they've seemingly abandoned him to his oppressive existence, to his nightmares about the graveyard and, quote, unsettling dreams about long, dark corridors all finishing in dead ends and locked doors. Harry thinks these dreams are his subconscious manifesting his feelings of being trapped. He does not yet know that he's dreaming of a real place, the Department of Mysteries, that will be a fateful place for him and for many of the people that he cares about. 
Voldemort is in Harry's mind, but at this moment, Harry's guardians aren't even in his life. From the book again, how could Dumbledore have forgotten him so easily? Man, that line cuts. Remember also that it was a three-year wait for this book and that this is what you're thrown back into. People who read the books in real time spent all this time waiting. That frustration. It's incredibly meta. Yeah, It's like, where are these people that I care about? It's amazing. She's incredible. Harry's insides writhe with anger as he thinks about being cut off from the magical world for these four long weeks. But notably, things in Little Whinging aren't quite as mundane as usual. In fact, they are suddenly quite ominous in numerous respects. When Harry was in the flower bed listening to the news earlier, he heard a loud crack that the Dursleys pretend was a car backfiring, but Harry knows better. That's the same sound that Dobby made when he vanished. That's the sound of someone apparating or disapparating, and that means that another magical being is on private drive. Could it be Dobby, Harry wonders? The who ultimately doesn't matter to him as much as the why. Why was someone here? Why hadn't that person spoken to him? To know that someone from his world had been that close doesn't bring Harry joy. It makes him feel the sting of the absence of interaction with people from the wizarding world even more keenly. Quickly, though, his thoughts shift from these into wondering if he had maybe just imagined it all. Quote, perhaps he was so desperate for the tiniest sign of contact from the world to which he belonged that he was simply overreacting to perfectly ordinary noises. The mounting longing and resentment inside of Harry is breathing another emotion within him. Doubt. Quote, Harry felt a dull, sinking sensation in his stomach, and before he knew it, the feeling of hopelessness that had plagued him all summer rolled over him once again. There's more than just mysterious sounds in the neighborhood, though. The beginning of Goblet of Fire, we saw what can happen when even magical people with the best intentions interact with muggles. The arrival of Dementors, Dementors in Little Whinging, sent, we will eventually discover, by the terrifically horrible Dolores Umbridge, shows what those with bad intent have to offer. Angsty Harry, driven from Privet Drive by restless thoughts, goes for a walk around the neighborhood and he encounters his cousin Dudley. Ickle Diddykins has grown, honestly, shockingly buff. And in addition to being the petty leader of a gang of petty bullies, he's now a boxing champ. Great. The noble sport. Yes. (laughs) Harry finds himself hoping that Dudley spots him, that Dudley's gang would come over for a go. He wants to vent his frustrations. He knows he can't risk using magic and face expulsion, but he needs some outlet. After Dudley's gang parts, Harry calls after his cousin and taunts him. Hey, Big D! As they turn into the alley between Magnolia and Crescent and Wisteria Walk, where Harry first saw Sirius in Prisoner of Azkaban, Dudley fires back. Not this brave at night, are you, sneered Dudley. This is night, Diddykins. That's what we call it when it goes all dark like this. (laughs) I mean, when you're in bed, Dudley snarled. We learn that Harry was so scarred by Cedric's murder and Voldemort's return that he's been screaming in his sleep. Dudley recounts this for him. Don't kill Cedric. Don't kill Cedric. Who's Cedric? Your boyfriend? Dad, help me. Dad, he's going to kill me. Dad, boo-hoo. This is savage and actually quite heartrending. And this enrages Harry so much that he actually pulls his wand and points it at Dudley's heart. He feels 14 years of hatred toward Dudley bubbling up, but he also feels something else, shame. Yes. A feeling that's exacerbated because the people who believe Harry, the people who know what he's been through and what he's faced, have basically vanished. As Dudley is begging Harry 
to point his wand somewhere else. He, quote, gave an odd shuddering gasp, and suddenly the light vanishes from the sky. The sound recedes from the distance, and a crushing cold settles down upon them. At first, Harry thinks he's done magic without meaning to, but then reason catches up with him. He can't generate this kind of effect. Only one thing can. Is it possible? As Harry tries to quiet the terrified Dudley, he hears it. That signature rattling breath. Mm -hmm. Dementors. More on dementors in today's restricted section. Dementors are there in the alley, closing in on them. Harry's trembling. Dudley, meanwhile, does the only thing that he can think to do. He sucker punches Harry, who he thinks is causing this, and he knocks Harry's wand loose and flees, blundering right into one of the creatures. Harry recovers, sees a Dementor gliding toward him, and as he stumbles backward, he tries to cast the spell. Expecto Patronum, but he can't work it properly anymore. How could he in his current mental state, his current emotional state? His wand emits just a wisp of vapor, but nothing forceful enough to actually repel the Dementor, which reaches for him. Quote, he couldn't do it anymore. He couldn't work the spell. Casting a Patronus requires force of will and force of mind, but more than that, it requires happiness, being able to find within yourself a true source of joy and hold on to that and turn it into a shield. And right now, Harry doesn't feel happy. He just feels Mm -hmm. alone. He feels abandoned. How can he hope to fight a depressive force when he himself is so depressed? Quote, there was no happiness in him. He hears Voldemort's shrill laugh, his bow-to-death taunt, and he thinks to himself that he's never going to see Ron and Hermione again. And then, as their faces fill his mind, he finds the force, the strength, to cast the spell again. And no matter how hurt he feels, how mad Mm -hmm. he is at Mm -hmm. Ron and Hermione, the love that he feels for them, the strength of their bond cannot be defeated. This is an important thing to remember when you're having a tough time with one of your friends. Harry Stag charges at the first Dementor, and then swings back, where Harry sees the other Dementor poised to deliver the kiss to Dudley, and then repels that one just in time. Quote, he could not believe what had just happened. Dementors here in Little Whinging. As Harry's checking on Dudley, he hears someone rapidly approaching. The homie Mrs. Fink! This is is (laughs) one of... Really an underrated reveal. Shocking moment. Absolutely shocking And then you look back and you see the mentions. Arabella Fig and Goblet. Just fabulous work from JK as usual. Harry moves to hide his wand. Quote, don't put it away, idiot boy. (laughs) She shrieked. What if there are more of them around? Oh, I'm going to kill Mundungus Fletcher. Chapter two, A Peck of Owls. Harry is stunned to learn that Mrs. Fig, the dull, cat-crazy, muggle neighbor of the Dursleys, is actually a squib. And she is livid about what just transpired, ranting about Mundungus Fletcher abandoning his post to pursue a batch of cauldrons that fell off a broom. But she's also terrified, clearly. After all, as a squib, she is no use to Harry or anyone if the Dementors return. No use to him if anything magically nefarious occurs at all. She is helpless, essentially. And Harry's mind is racing. So this bloke Mundungus has been watching him? He's the one who caused the crack by disapparating? From the book. Yes, yes, yes. But luckily, I'd stationed Mr. Tibbles under a car just in case. And Mr. Tibbles came and warned me. Wow, shouts to Mr. Tibbles here, by the way. Cat's really doing great work in this just book. fabulous stuff. Kirkshank should have won. Just yes. throwing that out there. <laughs> Mrs. Fig's plight forces us to consider yet again how unsettling it must be to be a squib and exist between worlds, lacking magic, but also lacking the peace of not knowing that magic actually exists. Yes. 
But she's not just a squib. She's a squib working undercover on Dumbledore's orders. Of course I know Dumbledore. Who doesn't know Dumbledore? Amazing line. She mentions the reasonable restriction of underage sorcery and says this is exactly what Dumbledore's been fearing. Harry asks why she never revealed her true identity to him. All those visits. All those cat photos. I know. So little truth. Honestly, that, that give her an Oscar, by the way. Like me. incredible method acting by give Arabella me Fig. Cat photos and old chocolate cake, and you can lie to me all you want. Quote Dumbledore's orders I was to keep an eye on you, but not say anything. You were too young. Ah, indeed, the Dumbledore way. Like so much else in Harry's life, like so much else that's still to come in this book, Harry's forced to process a truth through the lie by learning how many secrets have defined his life. And this lie, this lie, came from Dumbledore, who could have told him about Mrs. Fig or let Mrs. Fig tell Harry about herself, but never did. Mm -hmm. There's too much happening right now with the Dementors barely vanished and Dudley nearly unconscious on Harry's arm for him to really think about this. But this is yet another instance of death by a thousand cuts for Harry. One more lie that feeds his disillusionment and makes him question everyone and everything in his life. We have seen time and again how Harry's sense of inadequacy subsumes him when he thinks or knows that others possess more facts than he does. Think about how he reacted back in Prisoner of Azkaban to Draco taunting him about going after yep. Sirius. Just one of the myriad instances in which Harry reacts to the feeling that others know something about his life. His life. Yeah. Not just the world, his life right. that he does not know. And here we are again, at a time when everyone should be rallying around him, sharing the truth, uniting under the truth to fight their foes. Yet the depth of what Harry does not know appears to just be starting to reveal itself. Yep. Mrs. Fig, the homie Mrs. It's Fig, a squib. Even amid his anger and the horror of the Dementor attack, Harry remains ignorant to the threat he's facing. And of course, how can he know the truth of the ministry divide when no one has told him? Right. Saw Fudge challenge Dumbledore in the hospital wing, but he doesn't yet know that willful ignorance has festered or what it's created. He tells Mrs. Fig that he had no choice but to use magic and that surely the ministry will be more worried about why Dementors were in a muggle neighborhood than why a 15-year-old kid just used magic to defend himself from them. Before she can disabuse him of this notion, our guy Dung returns. Dung Fletch, <laughs> carrying the stench of drink and stale tobacco and an invisibility cloak to boot. Sup, Figgy? <laughs> What's up, baby? He says, fucking iconic entrance from <laughs> Sub Figgy is from like an all-timer. <laughs> what happened to stand undercover? She beats him with a bag of cat food, then sends him off to tell Dumbledore what has happened. She ushers Harry forward again, hinting at what Dumbledore knows or fears, again, filling us and Harry with wonder and curiosity from the book. And Dumbledore said, we were to keep you from doing magic at all costs. What does Dumbledore know? What hasn't he told Harry? He asks her to confirm that Dumbledore's been having him followed. Of course he has, said Mrs. Fig impatiently. Did you expect him to let you wander around on your own after what happened in June? Good Lord, boy. They told me you were intelligent. I love that line. Then when they reach number four, Mrs. Fig makes her exit and Harry literally calls after her in desperation. He's so hungry for information especially for some contact with Dumbledore, that Mrs. Fig currently clad in carpet slippers seems like a priceless resource. She, he clings to her like a life vest. Carpet slippers. <laughs> as soon as Petunia opens the door, Dudley vomits spectacularly mm -hmm. on the doormat. Petunia and Vernon are rightfully panicking 
based on the state that their son is in. What is it, son? What's happened? Did Mrs. Polkis give you something foreign for tea? I just want to be clear. That part's not right. That part was not right. As they're fretting over him, Dudley finally finds his voice, croaking him, meaning Harry. The Dursleys once again seeing their son fall victim to magic, even if they are mistaking the source of the magic this time, press Harry for answers. But just as they're giving their ward the what for, and just as Harry's beginning to deny that he did this to Dudley and trying to explain what happened, an owl arrives. He's carrying a letter from the ministry, and the news friends is... Not good. Due to his underage magic breach, Harry will be expelled from Hogwarts and his wand will be destroyed. Oh, no! (laughs) Seems bad, guys. Oh, my goodness. None of that is good. Now this guy really has fallen. Harry is thunderstruck. Expelled? Confiscate and destroy his wand? This? After all he's sacrificed? After all he's done? Voldemort is back. The Ministry is punishing Harry for trying to defend himself and other people? Harry sees his future hanging in the balance, and he is so shaken that he considers making a run for it. Whether or not he's expelled, he knows one thing. He needs his wand. Harry moves to leave, and when Vernon tries to stop him, Harry threatens him with his wand. There's nothing stopping him now. If he's already expelled, what is a little bit more magic? Right. His disillusionment has instantly compromised the social norms that bind his world together. Just as Harry's telling Vernon that he's no longer bound by Hogwarts rules, another owl arrives, this one carrying a message from Arthur Weasley. It reads, Dumbledore's just arrived at the ministry and he's trying to sort it all out. Do not leave your aunt and uncle's house. Do not do any more magic. Do not surrender your wand. This is both heartening, Dumbledore's fighting on Harry's behalf, and alarming. The ministry clearly is at odds with itself and with the people it's supposed to serve. And how much power does Dumbledore have over the government? This question, though, Harry doesn't know it yet, will hang over much of the remainder of the series. Harry decides to stay put. Dudley finds some strength and tries to tell his parents what happened, which is difficult since he has no frame of reference for processing the events. And also, listen, even in the best of times, not exactly a wordsmith. He tries haltingly to describe the feeling of having all hope and warmth sapped from his body and spirit. Quote, everything dark. And then I heard things inside my head. One of the Dursley's worst fears here. (laughs) Hearing things inside your head. Dudley struggles to go on, but chokes out a bit more. About the cold, about feeling, quote, as if you'd never be happy again, Harry finishes for him. It is so strange to think of something as awful as a Dementor attack being one of the only bonds that Harry and Dudley actually share. They've both experienced that feeling, that dread. Vernon still thinks that Harry caused it, though, and despite Harry's best efforts to explain what transpired. Dementors, said Harry slowly and clearly. Two of them. And what the ruddy hell are dementors? They guard the wizard prison. Azkaban, said Aunt Petunia. Hold on. Pause. Yeah. What? So this is a shocker, too. <laughs> this and the fi- and this is just bombs <laughs> dropping. And it's like, what? No easing into this story. Arabella Fig is squib, and Petunia knows what dementors are. What is happening? Dementors and little whinging. Oh, my goodness. Petunia... Knowing what Dementors are, we cannot overstate the shock of this moment. Quote, two seconds ringing silence followed these words, and then Aunt Petunia clapped her hand over her mouth as though she had let slip a disgusting swear word. Uncle Vernon was goggling at her. Harry's brain reeled. Mrs. Fig was one thing, but Aunt Petunia? Harry asks how she knows that, and Petunia tells Harry that she overheard, quote, that awful boy telling, quote, her, 
about them. More on that line later in the seven. It's hard to know who is more stunned about this reveal, Harry or Vernon, whose torpid little brain is just beginning to <laughs> grapple with yeah. the fact that his wife has never mentioned that she knows about Dementors and Small. that they're real. Small point. <laughs> Harry, meanwhile, has only heard Petunia acknowledge her sister and her link to the magical world once before, when Harry found out he was a wizard. Yeah. And Petunia hurled the word freak at her sister. Why has Petunia hung on to a detail so specific for so long when she always seeks to deny the existence of the magical world? Clearly, this moment hints at a much deeper connection yes. between Petunia and the wizarding world. As Vernon struggles to form coherent sentences, another owl arrives. Dumbledore, it seems, has managed to stay the ministry's hand. Harry is suspended, not expelled. For the moment, anyway. He will face a disciplinary hearing. Vernon, meanwhile, cannot wait to find out what fate awaits his nephew. From the book, have they sentenced you to anything? Do your lot have the death penalty? Oh my God. He added as a hopeful afterthought. Conversation turns back briefly to the Dementors, with Petunia shaking Dudley to check that he still has his soul. And then another owl arrives. Harry certainly will be word from Dumbledore at long last. So certain that, from the book, for the first time in his life, he was disappointed to see Sirius's handwriting. The message is shockingly short. Arthur's just told us what happened. Don't leave the house again, whatever you do. This response infuriates Harry, who turns the parchment over, thinking, uh, there's got to be something on the back, right? right? This is it? This is what you send me? The frustration that Harry has been trying and really failing to suppress finally boils over. His godfather, the person who is truly family to him, has nothing to say about what happened that evening. And Harry has battled two Dementors. Again, Dementors roaming the streets of a Muggle town. Yes. Attacking Muggles. Yes. And no one is like, great job defending Muggles and yourself. No one has anything to say about this. From the book again, both Mr. Weasley and Sirius were acting as though he'd misbehaved. Right. And they were saving their tellings off until they could ascertain how much damage he'd done. Harry's disillusion grows. Vernon, finally, has had enough. Had enough of Harry's innate oddity and his affiliation with strangeness. Enough of the arguing. Enough of the chaos. Enough of weird people showing up and ruining his home and deforming his son. Enough, enough, enough. Hearing that the Dementors who attacked his son were after Harry, that's the last straw. Quote, it's you. And you know what? He's not wrong. His words jumpstart Harry's mind, though. Why had the Dementors come to Little Whinging? Had the Ministry lost control of Azkaban? Could Voldemort have sent them? He speaks the name aloud. And, quote, Register dimly how strange it was that the Dursleys, who flinched, winced, and squawked if they heard words like wizard, magic, or wand, could hear the name of the most evil wizard of all time without the slightest tremor. We talk a lot about the clash of worlds. That line is another great indicator of that. How is it that Harry is having this conversation with people who don't know enough to fear Voldemort's name rather than with those who will actually be a part of the fight against Voldemort? Quote, The arrival of the Dementors in Little Winging seemed to have caused a breach in the great invisible wall that divided the relentlessly non-magical world of Privet Drive and the world beyond. Harry's two lives had somehow become fused, and everything had been turned upside down. When Harry tells them that Voldemort is back, Petunia speaks. Back, whispered Aunt Petunia. She was looking at Harry as she had never looked at him before, and all of a sudden, For the first time in his life, Harry fully appreciated that Aunt Petunia was his mother's sister. 
He could not have said why this hit him so very powerfully at this moment. All he knew was that he was not the only person in the room who had an inkling of what Lord Voldemort being back Mm -hmm. might mean. All Harry wants right now, after what he's witnessed and what he's had to fight, is acceptance and understanding and support and guidance. Sharing this moment with Aunt Petunia is the last place in the world that he expected to find even a glimmer of that. And yet, here they are. This, quote, unprecedented understanding that seemed to have sprung up between Petunia and Harry doesn't warm Vernon's heart. Not at all. Armed with the knowledge that Voldemort is back and after Harry, he does a thing that honestly makes a lot of sense. He throws Harry out. You're not staying here if some loonies after you. It's some loony. It's fucking incredible. <laughs> it's like calling Hitler some bad man. You're not staying here if some loonies after you. You're not endangering my wife and son. You're not bringing trouble down on us. If you're going the same way as your useless parents, I've had it. Out! Now, the letters from Arthur and Sirius and even the ministry were terribly disappointing and very short on instructions, but they were quite clear on one thing. Do not leave the Dursleys. We and Harry will learn at the end of order that staying at the home of someone related to his mother by blood seals the powerful charm which Dumbledore implemented that keeps the protection of Lily's sacrifice in place while Harry is at Privet Drive. Voldemort cannot harm him there. Now, Harry does not know that, of course. He just knows that he's been told not to leave the house under any circumstances. Vernon, meanwhile, is adamant. Time to leave. Time to go now. Harry is pondering this when a fifth Owl arrives, this one carrying a howler. Mm. Whoa. Addressed to Petunia? Whoa. Whoa. Petunia holds the envelope in her trembling hand and it begins to smoke, then bursts into flames and an, quote, awful voice fills the kitchen. Remember my last, Petunia? (laughs) Every single person in that kitchen is astonished. Dudley is confounded. Vernon is confused. He tries to get an explanation. Harry, his future on a knife's edge can only watch. Petunia, who we will learn in time, has just heard from Dumbledore calling back to the letter he left when he entrusted Harry to the Dursley's care, explaining the need to keep Harry in their home to provide him safety, finds her voice, finally. The boy will have to stay, Petunia says weakly. Vernon objects. Petunia makes a rather thin excuse about (laughs) the neighbors gossiping if they throw the boy out. And Harry asks the only question worth asking right now. Who is the howler from? Yes. Don't ask questions, she Mm. snaps. There's no doubt that Petunia has been in communication with magical people. This is disturbing to Harry and deepens his growing sense of disillusionment. Whatever her actions over the years have been, she knows clearly much more than she's been letting on. She might even know more than Harry. Don't ask questions. First rule for a quiet life, a perfect drive, right? Chapter three, the advance guard. Harry's sick of being kept in the dark. It's his life on the line. His head on the block. Voldemort's back. Harry's his target. Harry fought Dementors, Trolls, Dark Lord's Minions, ghostly pre-Voldemort Avatar, his resurrected form. He's been threatened with expulsion, the loss of his wand, a punishment which would leave him defenseless against Voldemort and anything. He writes to Sirius Ron and Hermione, the three people closest to him. Quote, I've just been attacked by Dementors and I might be expelled from Hogwarts. I want to know what's going on and when I'm going to get out of here. This night has upended Harry's reality. Dementors in Little Whinging, Mrs. Figgis Squibb, working with Menungus Fletcher for who knows how long to keep an eye on Harry. And still, no intel from his allies. 
Harry's certain he will at last get answers. No one can ignore the significance of the Dementor attacks. But there's nothing. For three days, he spends the time trying to get Petunia to tell him who sent the Howler and worrying over his looming trial. What if he's expelled? Where will he go? Will Sirius take him in? From the book, he could not return to living full-time with the Dursleys. No. Now that he knew the other world, the one to which he really belonged, as alienated as Harry feels right now, as distant from everyone in his life, the Wizarding World is still the only true home he's ever known. No matter how disillusioned he is, he'd never find peace or belonging again if he lost his place in the magical world. What if the Ministry finds that his breach of the Statute of Secrecy was severe enough to warrant a stay in Azkaban? A stay which, considering the way Dementors affect Harry, could really be a death sentence. Harry's mind works itself in ragged circles over these troubles with no solutions and questions without answers. On the fourth night, with the Dursleys out of the house, he hears a noise downstairs, grabs his wand, and heads there. At the foot of the steps, there's a crowd of figures shrouded in shadow. Lower your wand, boy, before you take someone's eye out, said a low, growling voice. It's Mad-Eye Moody. The real one, by the way. Harry's disillusionment keeps him frosty. After all, he just spent nine months believing he was in Moody's company only to have an imposter lead him to his near doom. But this is, as we said, the real deal. And he's with other members of a group who Harry will soon learn is called the Order of the Phoenix. It includes Remus Lupin. Quote, it's all right, Harry. We've come to take you away. Harry's heart leapt. He knew that voice too, though he hadn't heard it for more than a year. All Harry wanted all summer is to hear a familiar voice, and it comes to him now in a very surprising form. Lupin, his third-year defense against the dark arts professor and his father's friend, the man who helped Harry learn to cast a Patronus and unlock so much of the strength that he has within himself. Also present in the horde of wizards now standing in his home after a month of silence, the currently violet-haired metamorph magus Nymphadora Tonks, who boasts proudly of sending the Dursleys off to the all-England best-kept suburban lawn competition. That's the, a big man. That's a big man. <laughs> the Auror Kingsley Shacklebolt, Elphias Doge, Daedalus Diggle, who met Harry on his first-ever visit to the Leaky Cauldron, Emmeline Vance, Sturgis Podmore, and Hestia Jones. Veterans of the First Wizarding War who have answered Dumbledore's call in this, the early days of the second, to safeguard Harry's move from Privet Drive to a safe house. Nice early showing here for Dog Breath Doge. Okay. What Lupin <laughs> describes here as a headquarters and what will soon be introduced to as 12 Grimald Place, the unplottable ancestral home of Sirius Black. From the book again. A surprising number of people volunteered to come and get you, said Lupin, as though he had read Harry's mind. The corners of his mouth twitched slightly. Yeah, well, the more the better, said Moody darkly. We're your guard, Potter. Harry had some questions while they were waiting. Chief among them. Look, what's going on? No dice. We're not discussing anything here. It's too risky, Moody tells them. Even here, amid his long-awaited exit from his summer hell, Harry's starting to get salty from the book. Their relentless staring was starting to annoy him. Imagine how annoyed the Dursleys would be if they knew that Moody was rinsing his eyeball in their dishware. Oh, fucking gross. I mean, the fact that the other wizards were grossed out by it would mean that they were like, what the f <laughs> Harry does manage to shake a few details loose from this cage of secrecy. They will be traveling by broom because Harry's too young to apparate, and apparently— the flu network is being watched and Porky's are too tightly controlled. Yo, tell that to Dumbledore, who's going to yes. set up numerous unauthorized Porky's in this book because he is a baller. Tonks helps Harry pack. And as the party prepares to set off, Moody casts a disillusionment. Hey, 
there's our theme. Charm on Harry. His cloak, they note, would come off mid-flight. And Moody's instructions underline the seriousness of the night's events. Quote, we don't break ranks for anything, got me? If one of us is killed, is that likely? Fucking <laughs> al- quite alarming, guys. <laughs> but Moody ignored him. No one needs to remind Harry of the stakes. He saw Voldemort rise in the graveyard. He saw Cedric's corpse hit the ground. But there's something about seeing this group of wizards, including two active aurors and a retired legendary auror taking his extraction this seriously that shatters any remaining illusion. This is war, and the enemy could be around any bend. The group soar into the night, and Harry returns to his one consistent refuge from the book. He felt as though his heart was going to explode with pleasure. He was flying again, flying away from Privet Drive as he'd been fantasizing about all summer. He was going home. For a few glorious moments, all his problems seem to recede into nothing, insignificant in the vast starry sky. He feels alive, in other words, for the first time in a month after a long chilly flight in which the Order members took turns flitting close to Harry, presumably to throw off pursuers, they arrive at their destination. An unwelcoming stretch of grimy fronts, some with broken windows, some with trash heaped up on the steps. Moody uses the trusty old put-outer to darken the streetlights. He hands Harry a piece of parchment and tells him to read it and memorize it. Harry looks at the paper. From the book, the narrow handwriting was vaguely Mm. familiar. It said, The headquarters of the Order of the Phoenix may be found at number 12 Grimald Place, London. And now a quick break to hear from our sponsors. Binge Mode is presented by Universal Orlando Resort. Experience the fun and excitement of Universal's Islands of Adventure, Universal Studios Florida, and Universal's Volcano Bay. Ooh, there's a Universal Hotel for every style and budget. During our visit, we stayed at Lowe's Sapphire Falls Resort. From the stone turret in the lobby to the inviting charm of each room and suite, you're surrounded by a haven that is inspired by landmarks of the islands. Wonderful. Amid the beach area, palm trees and pool, you'll find Caribbean-themed dining options, including Strongwater Tavern, which offers rare vintage rums. Plus, when you stay at one of Universal Orlando's hotels every morning, you can breeze into one of three amazing theme parks via water taxi or shuttle an hour before other guests. Fabulous. You can't forget about the unique dining experiences at Universal CityWalk that every member of your party will enjoy. We dined at NBC Grill and Brew. Ooh! Nearly 100 high-definition screens that immersed us in a stream of sports coverage. Expect much more than your average bar food as a mix of tasty classics and incredible new creations are on the menu. And no matter what time of year you visit Universal Orlando Resort, you'll find exciting events to make your vacation more epic. Go to www.universalorlando.com to plan your visit today. Binge Mode is also brought to you by Loki. A lot of you might have noticed that your Instagram feed was flooded with puppy pictures yesterday for National Dog Day. Not that we're complaining. Which is why we want to tell you about a great partnership we learned about between Loci and the Humane Society of the U.S. Loci is donating $1 from each mint Loci bracelet sold to the Humane Society of the U.S. And they've already been able to donate over two years of animal care to their animal rescue team since starting this campaign earlier this month. Loci is a balanced jewelry brand that believes in giving back. 10% of all net profits are donated to charity. They've been able to build 98 wells in Ethiopia, plant 200,000 trees, and donate more than $1.3 million to breast cancer research and awareness. And that's just to name a few. Each bracelet holds elements from the highest and lowest points on Earth. Water from Mount Everest and mud from the Dead Sea. 
They want their bracelets to be a daily reminder to find your balance, staying humble during your highs and hopeful during your lows. We love this brand's message and a partner with them to get our listeners 25% off their purchase for the next week. Just enter code binge mode at lokai.com. That's L-O-K-A-I. Don't worry. One dollar from each mint Lokai bracelet sold will still be donated to the Humane Society, even with the discount. And now, back to binge mode. Chapter 4. Number 12. Grimald Place. Naturally. Harry's first response is another question. What's the order of the... Harry began. Not here, boy, snarled Moody. Wait till we're inside. Note for the members of Harry's advance guard and everyone else in Harry's life. If you want him to stop asking questions, start giving him enough information to fend off the questions. Moody lights the paper on fire, subtle. And as Harry looks up, he realizes there's no number 12 in the row of houses. Lupin tells him to think about what he just read. And as Harry does, number 12, Grimald Place, emerges into view. Serpent Doorknocker greeting them. We'll learn soon. Dumbledore, the secret keeper for the order, has just divulged the location to Harry, thereby letting him into the protective power of the Fidelius charm. Lupin unlocks the door with his wand, and Harry enters to Lupin's warning not to touch anything. Moody releases the streetlights and Harry's disillusionment charm, but Harry's actual disillusionment won't lift for quite some time. The home seems derelict, smells like rot, and the hushed Mm. voices of the assembled (laughs) fills Harry with foreboding. As Harry observes more serpentine objects in the hall, Mrs. Weasley emerges, and though she beams at Harry, he notices that she's thinner and paler than before. Moments like this are Damn, important. She's looking good, though. <laughs> Damn. Yeah, she always looked great. Looking great. <laughs> Moments like this are important because we so often perceive the burden of the war through Harry's eyes, especially this summer as his isolation defines his perception. But this war yeah. touches everyone. Mrs. Weasley mentions something about a meeting starting, and Harry goes to follow the adults into the room, but Mrs. Weasley stops him. No, Harry, the meeting's only for members of the order. She tells him that Ron and Hermione are upstairs and to keep his silence. Why? He'll have to wait to find out, naturally. One more secret for now. As she leads him into his room, he passes mysterious curtains and what appears to be severed troll's leg. Wonderful. And a row of house elf heads. Hmm. Mounted on the wall. What a wonderful tradition of the Black family, which we will learn much more about from the book. Harry's bewilderment deepened with every step he took. What on earth were they doing in a house that looked as though it belonged to the darkest of wizards? You'll find out soon enough. There's nothing dark about the greeting he receives when he opened the bedroom that Mrs. Weasley directed him toward. Hermione throws herself into his arms, shrieking along with Pigwidgeon. In delight, immediately she addresses the hippogriff in the room. Have you been furious with us? I bet you have. I know our letters were useless. She mentions the Dementors and assures Harry that her research has informed her that he can't be expelled. Ron grins at Harry and Hedwig swoops down. They're all here, his dearest friends, the companions he sought. But the warmth Harry feels is fleeting. Once Ron mentions again that Dumbledore made him withhold information, Quote, the warm glow that had flared inside him at the sight of his two best friends was extinguished as something icy flooded the pit of his stomach. All of a sudden, after yearning to see them for a solid month, he felt he would rather Ron and Hermione left him alone. Hmm. What an insight into how disenchanted Harry has become. The thing he's been craving can only satisfy him for a moment before the darkness consumes him. Ron feebly offers up that he thinks Dumbledore 
thought Harry was safest with the Muggles. True. We will learn, though still no excuse for failing to give Harry more information. Yeah, says Harry. Have either of you been attacked by Dementors this summer? And again, like, good note, my guy. Harry fires back at them. He's unafraid of conflict, unwilling to be docile. And Ron says, no, but that's why Dumbledore's had order members tailing Harry. This, it transpires, not the right thing to say. Quote, Harry felt a great jolt in his guts as though he had just missed a step going downstairs. So everyone had known he was being followed except him. Here it is again. Not only the fury over being kept in the dark, but the misery of realizing that so many others were in the know, including, in this case, his best friends, the people he counts on most. He was so angry, said Hermione in an almost awestruck voice. Dumbledore, we saw him. When he found out Mundungus had left before his shift had ended, he was scary. But Harry isn't in the mood to contemplate what's fueling that response in Dumbledore. He says only that he's glad Lundungus fucked up. Because if he hadn't, Harry would still be hiding in the begonias, listening for scraps of news. This reaction unsettles Hermione, who, unlike Harry in the present moment, is acting like a rational person. Isn't he worried about his ministry hearing, she wonders? But Harry is only capable of acting defiantly in this moment, so he lies. Just like he's mad at them for doing. No. He asked them why Dumbledore has been keeping him in the dark. Quote, he glanced up just in time to see them exchanging a look that told him he was behaving just as they feared he would. It did nothing to improve his temper. Harry, rightly, knows that Dumbledore could have kept him informed if he wanted to. You're not telling me he doesn't know ways to send messages without owls. Uh Correct. Patronuses, Uh fox feather, etc. Hermione's next comment hardly assuages Harry's fears. She says, I thought that too, but he didn't want you to know anything. We'll learn over the course of the book that Dumbledore feared giving Voldemort access through Harry. But the irony is that because of the very nature of the shield Dumbledore is putting up, he can't explain to Harry why he's doing it. Right. And in the absence of clarity, what else can grow but disillusionment? And it's a short skip from disillusionment to actual anger. Yes. Before he realizes what's even happening, Harry is screaming at his dearest (laughs) friends. So you haven't been in the meetings. Big deal. You've still been here, haven't you? You've still been together. Me, I've been stuck at the Dursleys for a month. And I've handled more than you two have ever managed. And Dumbledore knows it. Who saved the Sorcerer's Stone? Who got rid of Riddle? My good friend, Tom. My good. And that was tough because he was my close personal friend. (laughs) Who saved both your skins from the Dementors? Who had to get past dragons and sphinxes and every other foul thing last year? Who saw him come back? Who had escaped from him? Me! (laughs) Now, many readers felt deeply alienated by this display from Harry, who brings Hermione to the verge of tears with his outburst. But to us, Harry's reaction feels so right, so true. This is every bit of resentment that he's ever carried, every petty thought that he's ever indulged but forced himself in calmer times to suppress. None of this, it's important to remember, stems from true hatred. It just stems from feeling hurt. When you think or you know that your best friends are lying to you, it hurts no matter who you are or what the circumstances are. It doesn't matter if they are doing it for you or for them or for someone else. It feels like shit all the same. And on the heels of a trauma, like the one that Harry has suffered, when a support system and understanding are the only paths to acceptance and healing, it feels like the light has gone out. 
After he lets some of that poison out, he composes himself enough to ask some more pointed questions. What is the Order of the Phoenix, you guys? It's a secret society, Hermione says. Great. Can I get a little more? <laughs> Dumbledore's in charge. He founded it. It's the people who fought against you know who the last time. So intriguing is this information. So paramount to what lies ahead that Harry's anger at not knowing this is less forceful in the moment than his desire to find out more. Like, okay, who's in it? And of course, Voldemort from the book. What's happening? What's he up to? Where is he? What are we doing to stop him? We know it often that Harry can sometimes have blinders on, but this is one of the instances where that's a merit for him. He missed his friends, sure, but he isn't interested in small talk. He understands what the focus should be. He's relentless, determined to thwart the rising threat. If more people were programmed like Harry, maybe Voldemort wouldn't have gotten the first base at all. Ron and Hermione divulge the bit that they've managed to learn about the Order's doings with the Fred and George's latest invention, extendable ears. Some Order members are following Death Eaters. Some are working on recruiting new people to the Order. Some are standing guard over something mysterious. Quote, couldn't have been me, <laughs> could it? Yeah. <laughs> Said Harry sarcastically. He is, we will learn in time. Wrong. It's the prophecy. Just as Ron and Hermione are starting to tell Harry about their domestic decontamination work, Fred and George apparate into the room. And as usual, we can count on them not only to inject some comedy, but to speak truth to power, including yeah. Harry. Hello, Harry, said George, beaming at him. We thought we heard your dulcet tones. You don't Love want to it. bottle up your anger like that, Harry. Let it all out, said Fred, also beaming. There might be a couple of people 50 miles away who didn't hear you. They have come down via their newly sanctioned apparition ability to tell Harry that his temper tantrum is interfering with their extendable ears. Ginny, who also pops in, Says it's a no-go. Tonks taught her how to test a door to see if it's been imperturbed. And this one has. The ears won't help them spy on this meeting. This scene here is really something. Harry's anger. Ron and Hermione in cahoots, trading knowing glances. Fred and George calling Harry on his bullshit. Ginny showing that she's learned something that even her rule-breaking twin brothers haven't. All of our little kids are growing up. And grown-ups have opinions, you guys, including, in this case, that Snape sucks. He's a git. He's terrible. And the git is right here at the very moment giving a top-secret report. This is, I remember being, like, just nailed to the book yeah. when this happens. Oh I was God. just like, oh, whoa. Order of the Phoenix is a fabulous whoa. Snape book. Fabulous yes. Snape book. Quote, Harry was not sure his anger had abated yet but his thirst for information was now overcoming his urge to keep shouting. Harry's thirst for information is also part of what's fueling his anger, but in this case, the cause of his anger is also a potential roadblock from ever releasing that anger. We learn that Bill's back in England so that he can work for the Order, and he's not alone at Gringotts. Fleur is at the bank working to improve uh, English. <laughs> Wait until she finds out that the little baby boy is being hidden in the Grimwall place. Are you okay? Oh, the target of Voldemort. Is he okay? The little victim of Voldemort. I wonder how she interacts with Gringotts interns. Oh my God, right? <laughs> oh, who is this? I thought you were a goblin. You're so small. Oh. Are you a little Gringot employee, baby? Oh. <laughs> And Bill's uh, mentoring her. Yeah, uh -huh. he's doing this yeah. mentoring. He's teaching her. <laughs> yeah. He's teaching her stuff. Kind colleague. Yeah, it really is. Charlie, we learn, 
also in the order, but he's remaining abroad for recruitment efforts and because there are only so many pages to go around even for the Weasleys, which is sad. When Harry asks why Percy, member of the Department of International Magical Cooperation, last he heard, couldn't work on recruitment, a chill goes through the room. We learn that Percy and Mr. Weasley had a huge row the first week of summer following Percy's promotion. A promotion that, rightly, is a surprise to Harry. But Percy had committed the fairly large oversight of failing to notice that his boss was being controlled by Lord Voldemort. Yes, believe me, that has not stopped yeah, anyone from being first. <laughs> it's not stopped anyone from being promoted or rising to very high stations. Don't worry. When Percy told Arthur that he'd gotten the bump into Fudge's own office as junior assistant to the minister, Arthur revealed his suspicions that Fudge only elevated Percy as a means of spying on the Weasleys and through their connections, spying on Dumbledore. From the book again, Dumbledore's name's mud with the ministry these days, see, said Fred. They all think he's just making trouble, saying you know who's back. The divide is so bad, apparently, that Fudge has made it known that anyone in league with Dumbledore is unwelcome at the ministry. Percy, we learn, sided with the ministry, telling Arthur that he's been struggling against his father's reputation and that Arthur's lack of ambition is the reason the Weasleys have, quote, always been, you know, not had a lot of money, I mean. Ron says as Ginny hisses like a cat in an accompaniment. <laughs> Love Ginny. G- great book for Ginny as well. Let me just Wonderful. Say Percy declared in his opposition to Dumbledore his allegiance to the ministry, packed up and left. He's living in London, presumably surrounded by cauldron bottoms of the correct <laughs> thickness. From the book, Harry swore under his breath. Notable, our kids are now cursing. They're so grown up. They're grown up. Harry's engaging in a civil conversation with his friends in this moment, but that doesn't mean that what he's hearing is making him feel good. The strength of the Weasleys as a family unit has always been one of the things that Harry cherished and longed for and drew inspiration from. And seeing that even that is cracking should make anyone feel defeated. Yes. And then there's the ministry. Great stuff (laughs) going on at the ministry. Fabulous showing. Harry witnessed. Fudge's showdown with Dumbledore at the end of Goblet of Fire firsthand. So this isn't a total shock to him. But still, hearing the extent to which the government that's supposed to be combating threats and ensuring the protection of its people is burying its head in the sand is stunning. And that would be bad enough. But Fudge isn't just ignoring the problem. He is actively trying to thwart those who are saying there is a problem. Part of Percy's opposition, we learn stemmed from Harry being the main source of evidence. And Percy is not alone. Hermione shares that the Daily Prophet has turned Harry into something of a running joke, making him a punchline for tall tales. And Hermione is sure that Fudge is behind the effort. Quote, They want wizards on the street to think you're just some stupid boy who's a bit of a joke, who tells ridiculous tall stories because he loves being famous and wants to keep it going. Harry replies, I didn't ask. I didn't want. Voldemort killed my parents. Harry spluttered. I got famous because he murdered my family but couldn't kill me. Who wants to be famous for that? Don't they think I'd rather it never... Now, naturally, no one in the room needs to hear this from Harry, but he is wound so tight that he's defending himself even in front of people who don't need convincing. But the barrage of information propels them forward through this awkward moment, and Hermione's observation that the paper didn't report the Dementor attack is sincerely ominous. Why are they waiting? If they're all in on discrediting Harry... Why not report about his hearing? Is it to pounce if and when Harry is actually expelled? Is it because the Dementors aren't in their control? Harry, who grew up in an abusive home, Mm -hmm. has always had 
reason to doubt authority. But these conversations about the ministry divide are the beginning of his new relationship with formal governmental and societal power. He is still a boy. He's 15. But already he feels disenfranchised. After Mrs. Weasley summons them for dinner and sends the secretly dung bomb hurling Ginny off to wash her hands strong showy from Ginny. Great stuff. Has risen to queen level in the opening of this book. Harry begins to feel ashamed at how he's made Ron and Hermione feel. They look nervous just being around him. Nothing eases the tension in the room like a quick chat about slavery. And Harry gets his first download on Creature, the Nutter. The quiet trapes down to the kitchen doesn't stay quiet for long. Tonks, making good on her reputation as a grade-A klutz, causes a ruckus and wakes the portraits. Filth! Scum! Byproducts of dirt and vileness! Byproducts! Half-breeds, mutants, freaks, be gone from this place! How dare you befoul the house of my father's! A man with long black hair comes charging out to silence it. Blood traitor, abomination, shame of my flesh! Shame of my flesh The man is so and good. Lupin <laughs> hoist the curtains shut, and as the man sweeps his hair out of his eyes, Harry sees his godfather. Hello, Harry. I've seen you've met my mother. Oh, my! How I met your mother. Only it's about the <laughs> screaming portraits. I love it. Chapter five. The Order of the Phoenix. Right away. More questions. Why would a portrait of Sirius's mom be here? Yeah. Well, 12 Grimwald Place, we learned, was Sirius's parents' home. And now it's his because he's the last black. He offered it up to Dumbledore to use as headquarters. Quote, about the only useful thing I've been able to do. Harry notes the bitterness in Sirius's voice. And this is our first hint, our first glimpse of Sirius's disillusionment. He's growing discontent with not being able to help on the front lines. When they enter the gloomy kitchen, Bill hastily rolls up the scrolls that have been out on the table, and Harry, so attuned to what others are keeping mm-hmm. from him, naturally mm-hmm. notices this. And when Tonks helpfully nearly lights one of the scrolls on fire, Harry sees just enough by the light to deduce that it looks like the plan of a building. We'll learn in time that this is the Department of Mysteries. After some brief small talk with Dung, always good for a chat, whom Harry initially mistakes for a pile of rags, Sirius and Harry start catching up. And Sirius says he's not sure why Harry's so glum. He, Sirius, would have loved a Dementor attack to break up the monotony. Mm -hmm. This is concerning to hear, especially from Sirius, who knows much better than most the horror that Dementors unleash. But he's bored. He's been stuck inside for a month, and it's grating on him. He feels inadequate. Sirius was in prison for 12 years for a crime that he did not commit. Needing to go on the run when Wormtail escaped and the truth of Sirius's innocence escaped with him was certainly a bitter pill for Sirius to swallow, especially when the prospect of beginning a life with Harry had just become real to him. But at least he was free in a certain sense, you know, free to roam, free to breathe in fresh air, free to check in on Harry and try to keep him safe. Since headquarters open, he's been back in a prison, in a sense, caged. And not only caged, but caged in a home full of miserable memories for him, as we will learn more about in the next set of chapters, watching as others insert themselves fully into the action. In other words, he's the only one who really knows how Harry felt at Privet Drive. Captive, detached, unable to join the fight. He says he can't even use his disguise to go do work for the Order because Wormtail surely will have told Voldemort all about his animagus power. And the Ministry, of course, is still hunting for him. Quote, there's not much I can do for the Order of the Phoenix. 
or so Dumbledore feels. And when he says that last bit, Harry notes the tone that Sirius uses when speaking Dumbledore's name. And he feels not confusion or judgment. He feels his kinship with Sirius flare in this moment. Quote, Harry felt a sudden upsurge of affection for his godfather. They're two lost boys, desperate to help, but under Dumbledore's thumb, waiting basically for permission to fully enter the fray. And neither, as we will see, makes good choices when they feel oppressed. You know, the thing is, when you have a metamorph magus around, there's really no end to the entertainment. And Harry is taken in the sights. Ginny, taken in the sight of Ginny. Yeah. They understand each other. They've both been possessed by their good friend, Tom. That's right. I will say just the number of observations we get about Ginny in this chapter, another instance of just the masterful way that J.K.R. recalibrates. These books are through Harry's perspective. And the fact that we are reading more descriptions of Ginny, by definition, means that Harry is observing her more. Exactly. That's a very important thing. The lens of this story so often is Harry's lens. That's why it's very notable when it isn't. Mm-hmm. The, the times that it isn't, those are times you should take note of. Anyway, Jeannie and Hermione are requesting their favorite noses from Tonks. Arthur, Lupin, and Bill are discussing whether goblins would ever side with Voldemort if he offered them certain freedoms. Mundungus, showing more of his true colors, regaling the twins and Ron with tales of, you know, just theft, thieving, and selling stuff. When Mrs. Weasley sends everyone off to bed, Sirius says that he's surprised Harry didn't demand Information on Voldemort. In the book, the atmosphere in the room changed with the rapidity Harry associated with the arrival of Dementors. Harry, who's been trying to do nothing but, says so. Mrs. Weasley says that Ron and Hermione were right to tell him that they're too young to be in the order, but Sirius is on Harry's side. He's been trapped in the Muggle house for a month and has a right to know what's been going on. Fred and George throw a fit. Harry's not even of age. Sirius is, to his credit, not interested in this bullshit. It's not my fault you haven't been been told what the order's doing, said Sirius calmly. That's your parents' decision. Harry, on the other hand, and unfortunately he happens to be sharing a room with someone who also isn't here for the bullshit and who has a very different opinion, Mrs. Molly the MILF Weasley, (laughs) says it's not down to Sirius to decide and reminds him of Dumbledore's message. She says, the bit about not telling Harry more than he needs to know, she says, emphasizing those three words. What does this mean? What does Dumbledore want to keep from Harry? Is everyone in Harry's life aligned to prevent him from learning the truth? Harry's finally back with Sirius, a person he loves and trusts. The family that he wants, that direct link to his parents, and a person who actually wants him to let him get into the fight, to learn more about what's happening, and even then, coded whispers, words that conceal the full truth. But Sirius is unwavering. Harry saw Voldemort return. Harry deserves to know. He might be 15, as Mrs. Weasley notes, and not a member of the Order, as she also notes, but he's seen more, as Sirius says, than most grown wizards have. The tension rises. He's not a child, said Sirius impatiently. He's not an adult either, said Mrs. Weasley, the color rising in her cheeks. He's not James, Sirius. I'm perfectly clear who he is. Thanks, Molly, said Sirius coldly. I'm not sure you are, said Mrs. Weasley. Sometimes the way you talk about him, it's as though you think you've got your best friend back. What's wrong with that, said Harry. Now, this is an exceedingly fraught moment. In many ways, James is the heart of the bond that Sirius and Harry share. Turning that into something that's forbidden or misguided in any way is a corruption of something sacred. On the other hand, Mrs. Weasley has a point. 
And nothing but the desire to love and nurture and protect is fueling her comments. She's truly worried that Sirius projecting his affection for James onto Harry might confuse things and inhibit some of the other instincts that Sirius should be feeling, namely paternal protective ones. They're both well-intentioned. They're both right, and they're also both wrong and on the verge of deeply offending each other. Quote, meaning I'm an irresponsible godfather, Sirius asks. And he gets even more heated when Molly mentions his, quote, instructions from Dumbledore to stay put and avoid acting rashly. Now, Harry, no stranger to acting rashly. It's part of why he and Sirius are drawn to each other, just as it was a generation ago for Sirius and James. It's the bond of the marauders. Harry loves Mrs. Weasley dearly. She is the closest thing that he has ever known to a mother. But he's not willing to sacrifice that bond with Sirius Mm -hmm. for anyone, including Molly. Arthur and Lupin, in a much more gentle way than Sirius, take Harry's side. Dumbledore accepts that Harry will now learn certain things at headquarters, Arthur says. Better to give him the information from a reliable source, Lupin adds. Mrs. Weasley makes her last stand, noting, rightly as we'll learn over the course of the book, that Dumbledore must have his reasons and positioning herself as someone with Harry's best interest at heart. And then, he's not your son, said Sirius quietly. He's as good as, said Mrs. Weasley fiercely. Who else has he got? He's got me. Yes, said Mrs. Weasley, her lip curling. The thing is, it's been rather difficult for you to look after him while you've been locked up in Azkaban, hasn't it? Harry's deeply touched by Mrs. Weasley's comments about him being like her son, but his need for information and involvement is paramount. He's tired of a lot of things, but mostly of being treated like a child. It's hard to ever side against Mrs. Weasley, a source of endless love and light in this story, but Harry's shouldered a grown wizard's burden. As, by the way... Dumbledore has said to him in almost that exact language, he deserves to hear the truth. His state of disillusionment has solidified that much for him. And once the Harry thread pulls here, the whole sweater unravels. Arthur says Fred and George are legally adults. They can stay too. Ron notes that Harry will just tell him everything anyway. Quote, for a split second, Harry considered telling Ron that he wouldn't tell him a single word, that he could try a taste of being kept in the dark and see how he liked it. But the nasty impulse vanished as they looked at each other. Of course I will, Harry said. Ron and Hermione beamed. Only Ginny is successfully banished from the room. And at last, it's info dump time. Voldemort hasn't been killing because he's trying not to draw attention to himself. Nobody was supposed to know that he was back. And even though the ministry and the Daily Prophet and, as we will soon see, numerous individual witches and wizards don't believe Harry, Harry's still out there spreading the word. And Dumbledore knows. And he's spreading the word. And that's why the Order of the Phoenix is back. That's why an active effort to combat Voldemort is taking shape. Voldemort wasn't planning on any of that. And Bill reminds Harry that Dumbledore was the only one Voldemort ever feared, setting the stage quite nicely for the end of book duel to come. Oh, man. This is my favorite book, by the way. Let me just say that again. I know it annoys people. I know that the Harry uh, inner monologue and his angstiness and the fact that he's like kind of a dick (laughs) in this annoys people. I just think it's so earned. How would any of us feel in this case when it's like your life on the line, you've given up so much and people are just like whispering behind your back, not telling you shit that directly involves you. You'd be fucking enraged. It's a fabulous book. It's a great book. I love it. Anyway, so what exactly is Dumbledore trying to stop? For one, Voldemort's efforts to rebuild his armies, Death Eaters, Dark Creatures, those he's bewitched. And that's a hard thing to stop when Fudge is 
basically not worrying about this and is more concerned with preventing Dumbledore from encroaching on his power base and telling people what's actually going on. Fudge has gotten used to a comfy existence and he's absolutely enamored with his own power. He doesn't want to give up either. And that's the example from on high, right? What's the Russian saying? The fish rots from the head. What are the people who follow him supposed to believe? Not everyone wants to give in to the disillusion that comes from admitting that the system has completely failed. And it's so hard to do that because there is no other system. The system is the system. That's all you know. It's very hard to say everything we have built has completely failed because that implies that everyone has failed and you have to start from scratch. And that's scary. Even the order, even those who've committed to fighting for truth are hamstrung. Sirius is a wand criminal. Lupin is a werewolf. Nobody trusts those. Tonkson, Arthur, and Kingsley can't jeopardize their positions at the ministry. Even just the fact that they're there in the presence of a wanted criminal would mean, you know, sentencing to ask a man for them. But there's some good news. Kingsley's in charge for the hunt for Sirius, and he's on their side. Sounds like a great episode of Law and Order. Listen, that would be incredible, <laughs> right? I mean, that's basically the departed, right? <laughs> Telling you, oh, spec grip on the way. And Dumbledore, who's trying to actively spread the word, is meeting opposition. The ministry is trying to discredit him. He's been voted out of his chairmanship of the International Confederation of Wizards. He's been demoted from chief warlock of the Wizengamot. And he might lose his order of Merlin first class. Arthur says he'll be lucky to avoid Azkaban if he keeps it up. Again, foreshadowing the extent to which Fudge will go, or try to go, rather, in this book. Way to go, Corn! Way to fail spectacularly always. Get this motherfucker out of here. Gathering followers, though, that's only one of the things Voldemort's after. Quote, he's got other plans, too. Plans he can put into operation very quietly indeed. And he's concentrating on them at the moment. Continues. Stuff he can only hit by stealth. Continues. Like a weapon. Something he didn't have last time. Harry presses. What kind of weapon? Something worse than the killing curse? We will learn over the course of the book that this refers to the prophecy that Trelawney made about Harry, nearly Neville, and the Dark Lord, the one that led Voldemort to kill Lillian James and try to kill Harry, thereby marking him as his equal. But we won't get that info here because Molly finally refuses to concede. That's enough, she says. Any more info? And he might as well be in the order. Well, that sounds just great to Harry. He's ready to sign up, but Lupin is the one who says no this time. The order is for of-age wizards only and ones who've left school. Recognizing defeat, our kiddos shuffle off to bed at last. Jason? Yes! Did you expect him to let you wander around on your own after what happened last episode? Good Lord, boy! They told me you were intelligent. Ah. I need you to wander on your own for a few minutes, though, so please toss the invisibility cloak over our heads and lead us into the restricted section to teach us what we need to know. At long last! about Dementors. Ah, Dementors, wonderful creatures. (laughs) Actually, no, they're horrible. Sorry. Awful, vile, the embodiment of sadness and depression and the absence of hope. Dementors, let's talk about what they look like. They have slimy gray skin skeletal hands with long, really gross fingers. They are invisible to muggles and squibs, though non-magical folks can feel their effects. This is how Arabella Fig understood what was happening there in that alley in Little Whinging. Thankfully, mercifully, 
It's impossible to know what their actual anatomy is because they're robed from head to whatever it is down there because they float in flowing sheets of midnight black cloth, which give them the look of the Grim Reaper himself, which, as we've seen, is quite apt. The creatures are blind and deaf. They're drawn to warmth and happiness and hope, which they feed upon with ravenous vigor, imbuing their human victims with an oppressive hopelessness, depression, and a feeling of existential cold. But all that is just the appetizer, folks. The main course is the delicious human soul, mm, which they devour using the dreaded Dementor's Kiss. Victims of the kiss are considered worse than dead. They're still breathing bodies, mere husks, with no light behind the eyes, perverted memorials to a person who no longer exists. But hey, at least Dementors know the value of a hard day's work. At this point in our story, Dementors are still employed by the Ministry of Magic as guards at the magical prison of Azkaban. How did this come to pass? Simple. Dementors were just in the building. They were just there. <laughs> they needed something to do with them. Per Pottermore, the history of Azkaban stretches back to the 15th century. A dark wizard named Ecrisdes, mm. who we know very little about, either created or discovered the island in the North Sea, which we now know as the location of Azkaban, the ministry's wizarding prison. He built a fortress there. He entertained himself by luring muggle sailors to the island where they met their doom in the foulest of ways. After Ecrisdes died, the concealment charms he placed on the island, on his island home weakened, and the place came to the attention of the ministry. Those sent to investigate the island refused to recount the horrors they found there. What they did speak of, and apparently the least terrifying thing on the island, was an infestation of Dementors. Think about that for a second. That was Jesus. the least bad thing they found there was the Dementors. Oh my God. The creatures were incredibly powerful and unkillable, in fact, having for years feasted on the misery of those that is Ecrisdes lured to their doom. Some in the ministry thought the island and its fortress should be destroyed, but the Dementors, as I just mentioned, proved impossible to kill. So what can we do with them? What would happen to them if their home was raised? Where would they go? There, the question of what to do about the island lingered, unanswered, for many years. Eventually, it was decided that the place should house a prison. The wizarding prison system at the time was ad hoc, made up of many small facilities spread across the countryside. The threat of a breakout at any one of them threatened the recently enacted international statute of secrecy. Thus, in the early 1700s, the eyes of the ministry finally fell upon this Dementor-infested island fortress in the North Sea. It seemed like a win-win for everyone. Dementor's foul nature was put to use as a punishment for the wizarding world's worst, and the creatures were kept busy. And the ministry got the central prison that they needed to keep from breaching the statute of secrecy. But who could object to all this? Well, how about anyone that was concerned about, you know, the conditions on the island or that these vile creatures might one day decide they wanted more than just the souls that Azkaban could provide. From the start, the prison of Azkaban was divisive. Eldritch Diggory, an ancestor of Cedric and minister of magic from 1733 to 47, was horrified by what he saw when he visited, and he attempted to close Azkaban. His efforts ultimately failed when he died of dragonpox. Tough stuff there. <laughs> Azkaban's perfect no-breakouts record and the fact that Experts had advised that shutting down the prison would deprive the Dementors of the sustenance they required, thus spurring them to head for the mainland, made the issue a no-brainer. Azkaban would remain in operation. And there the issue stood again for nearly three centuries until serious Black's escape. Though technically not the first escape from Azkaban, 
Barty Crouch Jr. snuck out earlier, though that wasn't discovered for over a decade. Sirius's dramatic flight to freedom and the bad press it generated spurred the ministry to use the Dementors off-site for the first time. As Dumbledore feared, the Dementors' dark predilections made them Voldemort's natural allies. Or, really, the natural allies of anyone who would be like, yeah, go ahead and devour souls. I don't care what you do. That's fine. Ultimately, it's Kingsley Shacklebolt who makes Eldritch Diggory's vision of a Dementorless Azkaban a reality. After the conclusion of the Second Wizarding War, he rises to the position of Minister of Magic and with the power vested in him, replaces the Dementors with ours. What happens to the Dementors after this is not known. Jason? Yes. How dare you befoul the podcast studio of my father's? How dare you delay the seven? Wow. We need to split our nuggets, if not our souls, by sharing seven of our favorite insights and observations from Order of the Phoenix chapters one through five. Because seven remains the most powerfully magical number. I'll go first. Number one. Quote, Despite the sense of numb dread that had settled on Harry since the arrival of the first owl, he felt a certain curiosity. Dementors caused a person to relive the worst moments of their life. What would spoiled, pampered, bullying Dudley have been forced to hear? Ah, good question. And one that really captivated the readership for quite some time. Naturally, J.K.R. was willing to oblige. She said at a Q&A in Carnegie Hall in 2007, quote, My feeling is that he saw himself exactly for what he was, and for a boy that spoiled, it would be terrifying. So he was jolted out of it. Dementor attacks aren't usually good for people, but this one was. Let's not forget what Dudley says to Harry when they part ways in Deathly Hallows. Quote, I don't think you're a waste of space. Now, we don't want to ever condone anybody being exposed to a Dementor attack. That is not good for anyone. But it is notable that Dudley's recalibration appears to begin here. Number two. The Advance Guard Seven Potter Parallels. The flight from Little Whinging to London and 12 Grimmauld Place is uneventful. But its tense beginnings with Moody mentioning what to do if, you know, someone's killed, clearly presage the Battle of the Seven Potters when Harry is evacuated from Privet Drive yet again by members of the Order, in that case all disguised as none other than Harry Potter. Again, in that case, they have to fly because other members of transit are being tracked. That one goes really bad. Really, really bad. This time, though, they're on the prowl. It's all clear and hallows. It's madness from the start, resulting in the death of Hedwig, which I still have not recovered from, and the maiming of George Weasley, and, of course, the death of Mad-Eye himself due to Mundungus being a fucking bitch. This bit of foreshadowing is particularly painful to consider in the light of what Moody says here. Quote, if one of us is killed, the others keep flying. Don't stop. Don't break ranks. That happens when Moody himself kill in Hallis because again Mundungus Fletcher is a fucking cowardly little bitch R.I.P. to Moody R.I.P. to Hedwig R.I.P. to George's ear number three there is a truly distressing amount of serious death foreshadowing in these opening chapters when Harry arrives at Grimald Place he thinks quote it was as though they had just entered the house of a dying person unfortunately that will prove to be true Later, after Fred and George mishandle dinner, we get this description, quote, the bread knife slipped off the board and landed, point down and quivering ominously, exactly where Sirius's right hand had been seconds before. Yes, ominous indeed. And as that happens, Sirius is laughing, which painfully parallels his non-near miss at the veil in the Department of Mysteries, where, of course, we get the description, quote, 
The laughter had not quite died from his face, but his eyes widened in shock. And then, of course, we can't ignore this line from Hermione. Dumbledore says we should be kind to creature too. Number four, wandless magic. During mm. the Dementor encounter, Harry lights his wand using Lumos without it being in his hand. Now, Stunning this, moment. This is advanced shit. Even though the spell itself isn't particularly difficult, wandless magic is tough to pull off. A wand acts as a focus point and magic without the use of one is more apt to go awry. That said, Wagadu, the African school of wizardry, specializes in wandless magical training. Incredible. For more on other magical schools, check out the restricted section from our fourth Goblet of Fire episode. Number five. Let's chat about Petunia for another hot second here. We already chatted earlier about how she reveals that Dementors guard the wizard prison. Ask Abana what a shock that is. Let's talk about the line that follows shortly thereafter. I heard that awful boy telling her about them years ago, she said jerkily. Now, it is amazing to contemplate that immediately upon hearing that, Harry assumes that, quote, awful boy refers to his father. We will learn in time that it is actually Snape. This is so fascinating to consider, not only in terms of the Snape reveals to come, but also in terms of how Harry views himself in relation to Snape and James. The Snape equals Harry subplot that appears in force during Snape's worst memory later in this book and continues with defense against the dark arts lessons in Prince and, of course, Harry's draw to the Half-Blood Prince's textbook, so on and so on and so on. And then beyond that, we see Petunia learn in Deathly Hallows in The Prince's Tale that Snape tells Lily the following, quote, Dementors are for people who do really bad stuff. They guard the wizard prison. Azkaban. You're not going to end up in Azkaban. You're too. That is when Petunia, who will later learn wanted desperately to be a part of the wizarding world, falls out of her hiding place. And it means, of course, that Petunia repeated Snape's words verbatim decades later. JKR is the best. Also worth noting another little Petunia nugget from this section. Before this happens, before they're talking about Dementors, we get this line. As if we're interested in their sordid affairs, sniffed Aunt Petunia, who had followed the case obsessively in every magazine she could lay her bony hands on. This is a small and seemingly insignificant moment, but it's actually a notable clue in a chapter full of Petunia Easter eggs about Petunia's hypocrisy, her outward disdain for something that she secretly covets. Number six, Mundungus Fletcher. Hey, don't trust this guy. Tons of foreshadowing here regarding Dung Fletch's unreliability and general shadesterness. He's been put in charge of watching Harry but leaves to do a cauldron deal. He's constantly looking around 12 Grimald Place for shit to steal. And sure, as Sirius notes, it's good to have a thief and black marketeer around when you are in a guerrilla war and you need supplies. Fine. It really doesn't mean you need to make him a full-fledged member of the order with access to the headquarters, though, right? Mm -hmm. He asks Sirius if the house-crested goblets are real silver. Wow, it's just subtle stuff from Mundungus <laughs> Fletcher. These are, we can deduce, the goblets he actually steals after Sirius' death in Raging Harry. And of course, Dung Fletch, loose in the HQ, will also steal a certain locket from Creature. That locket will turn out to be crucial to stopping Voldemort as it's a horcrux and was once owned by Salazar Slytherin. Maybe just, Yeesh. let's limit this guy's ability to roam the house. Like, it's not that hard. At least give him a breath mint. Yeah, I mean, you don't, <laughs> don't make this guy, don't give him, like, full classified clearance. Just be like, yeah, we use Mundungus for stuff. Number seven, finally. Oh, is, you yeah. mentioned Hedwig earlier, but I don't we, want to talk about this. we have to note another devastating 
Hedwig death illusion. Quote, just as he limped past the window, Hedwig soared through it with a soft rustle of wings. This is awful. Like a small ghost. Harry did not treat Hedwig good enough during her short life. He's always yelling at her, telling her to do stuff, do this, do that, not paying attention to her, not praising her when she comes back after a hard flight. She spends a lot of time being like, why are you being mean to me? I know, it's really sad. And then he's like, don't eat that toad that you just hunted down, spending, you know, how much energy to hunt the toad down. I need you to deliver this letter and peck people. And she just does it. She's a very loyal friend. It's very, very tough. Protect Edwig! Please. Mal, he's not your co-host. He's as good as. Who else has he got? He's got me! And I'm here to crown him. Every episode, we're going to honor the person or creature that compelled us the most. And today, we're dishing out some last-minute points and awarding the House Cup to... In divisive fashion, yeah. Sirius Black, the Godfather himself. Should we put Cram on blast here? <laughs> Cram campaigned really hard for Mrs. Fig. And I was like, if it's going to be Mrs. Fig, it's really got to be Mr. Timbles. I will say that she has a case. Figgy has a case. <laughs> Sup, Figgy? <laughs> Figgy? Sup, Figgy? You got the a case? Gal Figgy has a case. She's been putting her pussy to work. Wow! <laughs> You've been putting that pussy to work on the streets. Oh <laughs> That's all I'm saying. Oh, my God. Jesus fucking Christ. <laughs> wow. That said, we're going with Sirius Black. We are. He's been keeping tabs on Harry despite not having direct links to the ministry. He manages to get a letter off to Harry warning him not to leave Privet. And you have to think, right? Listen, Harry loves and respects Arthur, but it's probably Sirius's warning not to leave the house that Harry actually listens to. Yeah, Sirius knows he needs to get through to Harry yes. immediately. Yes. He also clearly wants to tell Harry more than other people, and he goes toe-to-toe with Molly Weasley. And Sirius standing up for Harry's right to Means know, a lot. right to be brought in and informed, at least to a certain extent, really means a lot at a moment in time when Harry feels like nobody is coming to his aid. It's huge. Also, while he's confined to the house, the fact that he's among other members of the order means that more people now know that he is innocent, which is no small thing. Yes. Kingsley Shacklebolt, like, that's not huge. actually looking for him anymore is a big deal. That's a huge deal. Also, listen, Crookshanks jumps right into that lap, oh, curls up, serious, pets that little Kepler. a lot. They're best friends still. It's really they, beautiful. They know a lot about each other. <laughs> all right, friends. Yeah. This is night. That's what we call it when the podcast studio goes all dark like this. So thanks, as always, to Isaac Lee and Zach Cram, our yes. indispensable producer and researcher, our popkins, if you will. Yes. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today, that you're as excited as we are for the rest of this journey, and that you will join us again tomorrow when we will be discussing Order Chapter 6 through 9. Until then, remember our last. Dudley, Dudley, what did you see when the Dementors closed in? What was it? Oh, it was so cold. It was freezing. What else? What else, boy? I saw a vision, nightmare vision. What? What? My PlayStation account was suspended. I couldn't get online. It was so cold. It was so cold. It was so dark.